This, was a, this would be the closing presentation to a non-Adventist audience built on the idea of the great controversy and how it all comes to a culmination at the end of time. Okay? Um, I will probably cut some corners and not explain some things that as Adventists you should already know, but it's really the interrelation of the ideas, not the documentation of every point that I'm after. So I hope that helps somewhat. Otherwise, you may be scratching your head and saying, what is the guy doing? <laughs> okay. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer, please. <clears throat> Father, we ask that uh, you would be with us now. We pray again for your spirit to teach, to lead, to guide. Help us to understand and to be wise to present, no matter how we do it, that we might rightly represent your government, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> this last one is entitled, Finishing the Puzzle, Getting the Pieces in Place, and that's drawn from a, an analogy that I'd used a couple of sermons back in the series of how when you, truth has to, has to hook together, okay? That's the great thing about systematic theology, okay? Um, I'm going to jump partway in, skip over the introduction I would give to a non-Adventist audience, and just simply say that um, all along the first nine sermons, we've established the idea that God is seeking to demonstrate the principles of his government, and demonstration is very important, and it hasn't changed at all, okay? The plan always has been to have God's people live by the principles of his kingdom. So Jesus says things like this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. And you're familiar with the verse, so I'm not going to read it all. <clears throat> okay? That's the way Jesus lived. And the importance of that comes out in Philippians 2. And again, this is the description of Christ who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance of a man, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Okay. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, and that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay. <clears throat> Through the series, we've established the fact that it was Jesus' life that entitled him to this status that he now has. That he's, he's a name which is above every name. That's significant. And this verse tells us why. It's because, therefore, right there, that's the word, okay? Because he lived like this, he's entitled to that name, okay? And there's a demonstration that is, <coughs> excuse me, to be made. Um, and what we want to look at now is specifically the demonstration which must be made to end the great controversy. We've spent nine sermons talking about different aspects of it coming along. How's it going to end? How's, how's the war going to end? You know, um, That's always a big issue. You've got people squirming in the government of the United States right now. You know, How do you end the war on terror? Huh. You've got people saying this, this is a war that will never end. We've, we are now very much involved in a situation like Jews versus Arabs. You know, how long has that war gone on? Quite a while. 
<laughs> okay. So how do you end a war, okay, in this particular war, okay? <coughs> uh, Christians are supposed to live the same way Christ lived. That's what it means to take the name Christian, and don't take it in vain. And that's why Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? <coughs> he has a different set of principles. Doesn't include fighting. <laughs> okay? If Christ's servants were of this world, they'd fight. But they're not. He has a different kingdom. He has a different set of principles. Christians turn the other cheek because their kingdom is not of this world any more than their king's kingdom was. And in all this, we are called to be a part of the demonstration of heaven's principles, just as Jesus was. In fact, it was according to the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And we're right back again to the, the role of demonstration by the church. We have got to demonstrate God has got to demonstrate through us, however you want to word that, a couple of things. And these are, not, these are not complicated. They're logical things. And the most logical thing is, is it safe to take people like you and me to heaven? Why would you say the great controversy is over and take people to heaven if they're not safe to take? And how do you know that they're safe? That has to be demonstrated. Okay. Um, Jesus lived the way he lived and was exalted but Jesus had never sinned we have sinned you know even if even if we stop sinning you know are we are we safe and it's not just a matter of simply put safe Look what, look what God's talking about doing to human beings who overcome. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Angels don't sit down on the throne of God. That's what Lucifer wanted. Lucifer was the highest of the angels. God's going to take us and put us where no angel has ever been or ever will be near as I know. Not only that, remember the verse we always use when we're talking about conditional immortality and state of the dead? God alone hath immortality. That's going to end. He's going to give immortality to human beings. Immortality is not the same as eternal life. Angels have conditional eternal life. Immortality is the inability to die. Lucifer didn't have immortal life. He had eternal life on condition of obedience. He's going to die. But humans are going to be made immortal. That's a huge risk. <laughs> you know? Do you want to make somebody immortal who was once a sinner? You better be sure that you've got evidence that, that that's a safe thing to do. Gabriel has every reason in the world to be a little concerned about this. Okay? Um, <clears throat> okay. Well, let's see. Who says that angels need demonstration? Now, aren't they all just happy to go with what God says? Don't they already trust God? Well, yes, they do trust him. That's why some angels are in heaven. They trusted God more than they trusted Lucifer. So they're in heaven. But remember, 
God went to a lot of trouble to demonstrate in the book of Job. Talked about that last two sessions. Okay? He's established, that book establishes, the book of Job establishes God's priority of demonstration. And the Bible tells us there will come a time when there will be very, very clear. Notice this verse. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day, on the day, what day is this? We're talking the end of time, okay? On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then, at that time, you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between he, one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Okay? In that day, there will be a clear demarcation. It's not so simple now. You know? Have you ever met somebody that was not a Christian at all, but just seemed like a wonderful person? I hope you have. <laughs> I hope you have. You know, there are some wonderful people out there, you know, but they're not Christians. Yeah. Will they be saved? I don't know. I can't read the heart. But there'll come a day when we'll discern. Okay? Um, <clears throat> okay. Even the best of God's followers have on earth have on earth been too often. Well, I made something a mistake in my sentence. I'm going to rewrite the whole thing. Anyhow, we make mistakes and we sometimes follow Satan's principles. That's the concern. Okay, even even God's followers, we sometimes we slip back unknowingly even to follow God's principles. Luke tells a story about this. Okay, um, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem going up to Jerusalem to die, okay? Um, he was coming up to a village, and he sent his disciples ahead, okay? Luke says Jesus sent messengers to a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but the Samaritans were not happy with this. They did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem, okay? This was a deliberate insult shown the king of Israel on his way to Jerusalem, the capital city. That was just way too much. And two of Jesus' disciples said, that's too much. We can't possibly put up with that. And so, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. That should be a comma. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What was wrong? What was wrong with their idea? Well, we say, Jesus is loving. Okay, then. What was right with Elijah's idea? You remember the story, right? Ahab's, or Ahaziah actually, Ahaziah sends uh, uh, 50 soldiers out to get Elijah. And he says, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. <laughs> Ahaziah sends another 50. And he says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. <laughs> Was that right? Well, who sent the fire? <laughs> so why was it right then and wrong for them and besides God's going to send fire down on sinners at the end of time 
what's the difference? Well, the difference is simple. We can't read hearts. And there was, there was a, a big difference. All those soldiers, they were soldiers of Ahaziah, apostate king, son of Ahab, apostate king. They were all old enough. They'd gone through the three and a half years of drought. They'd been on Mount Carmel, Carmel or at least they'd heard about it. They knew full well who they were talking about. This was Elijah, the man of God. What did the Samaritans know about Jesus? Oh, he was a Jew, and Jews called him dogs. Is there a reason for a difference? Sure, there's a reason for a difference. What about the sinners at the end of time? Why does God send fire on them? Well, the New Jerusalem is parked right in front of them, you know? They see, there's nothing, there's nothing left to faith. They see it all, and they still refuse you know, their, their hearts are still estranged from God. There's, there's a, a big difference, okay? So my point here is simply that the principles of God's government, and, and again, we, let me put this out for those of you who weren't here. We've established and worked all the way through now, not really here, but anyhow, in theory, nine sermons, okay, establishing and, and setting out two principles. Satan's principle is, I know what I want, and if it's necessary, I'll kill you to get it. I have to because I can't trust God or anyone else to take care of me. On the other hand, Jesus' principle is, I know what's best for you. And if I have to, I'll die so you have a chance to get it. I don't have to do that, but my father thinks it's best, and I trust his love and judgment. Those are the principles of the two kingdoms. James and John were following a principle that was foreign to the kingdom of God. Okay, <clears throat> so back again. What's it take, though? How are we going to ever get to the point where it's all clear and we can ring the curtain down, so to speak? Uh, I'm going to skip. Well, no, I want to catch this a little bit here. Okay. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. <coughs> this is the Great Commission. Everybody's familiar with this. Um, here's, uh, boy, for sake of time, I'm going to cut some corners. It's important to know this. This gospel. This is not the way I do this in, a, in, in this sermon or, you know, for a non-anonymous public, but that's okay. I just want to get this point out really quickly. Which gospel is this gospel? You know, if the Pope could broadcast in a series of evangelistic meetings to all the world and everyone on earth heard it, would that bring on the end? No, I don't think so. There's a, a qualitative element to this gospel, okay? Not just a quantitative, okay? If Billy Graham could preach to all the world, would that bring on the end? I don't think so, you know? Uh, you can go down the whole list. And eventually you can get down the list and you can say, you know, what if Mark Finley could preach a, 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 a series of meetings to all the world? Would that bring on the end? Well, it'd be a lot closer. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying is that this gospel, this gospel, the one talked about in that verse, has to be complete, mature, and sufficient to answer all the questions. It's, it's a reason, there's a, there's a purpose it has to fill. Are you waving a hand? Or? Quick comment. I would have no problem with identifying it with that verse. Yeah. It's a gospel of demonstration rather than proclamation. 
to be honest. Okay, and that's not the way I would have said that here necessarily either, but that's okay. Um, I'm going to skip a couple of paragraph or of present a couple of these things here just because we need to. Um, okay, still talking about this gospel. Okay. This is what Paul said, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay? There's more than one gospel out there. Paul wasn't happy with the others. Okay? Matter of fact, I think that's, that's pretty strong language. I think it's the strongest language he knew how to use. Because when he wants to repeat the idea and for emphasis, he doesn't find any new way to say it. <laughs> this is the next verse. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again. This is the next verse, Paul. <laughs> if anyone preaches any of the gospel to you, then that what you have received, let him be accursed. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the worst thing he could say. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. God's people need to take this gospel to all the world before God can end the war with Satan. When everyone knows the principles of this gospel, follow me on this, the question of knowledge ceases to be a variable. Okay? Follow me on this. This is, this is, care. This is important here. Make sure I'm getting this in at the right spot. Um, <clears throat> different people know the gospel and different people don't at this point. Different people have a better gospel than others. This gospel needs to go to everyone. There's a reason for that. Um, I'm not able to read all this fast enough. I'm, I'm sorry, this is uh, not working as smoothly as I wish it would. Um, <coughs> I'm going to just maybe abandon my presentation for some degree and tell you some of this here. Okay. Think of it like this. If I have a car that's not working well, I'm going to change the spark plugs try new gasoline, and do a transmission flush. And now it works better. How did I fix it? I don't know. It might have been all the spark plugs. It might have been all the transmission flush. It might have been half spark plugs. It might have been half whatever else I said, oil change. I don't know what I said. Anyhow, gasoline change, a different brand of gas. I don't know what it is. I have too many variables. right? I don't know what fixed it. If I had done one thing at a time and measured the results, then I'd, I'd know something. Okay, that's that's science. You you remember that from your seventh grade science class. Okay, you always try to set up an experiment so you have only one dependent variable, or one. Um, so where do I want? Anyhow, one thing that you can tweak, and then you look at the dependent variable on the other end and see what the change has been. Okay, God is is in the process of making a demonstration here, and um, <coughs> that's where. I want to go ahead here a little bit. Um, <clears throat> this gospel, the everlasting gospel, goes to all the world. Okay, that's, that's where I'm at. It has to go to all the world to remove that, that variability of knowledge. Okay, everybody has to understand it. It's not going to all the world because everybody needs a chance to be saved. The Lord already knows how to save people who don't know the gospel. We, we talked about that previously, right? <laughs> okay. Um, the Lord already knows how to judge people who never heard the gospel. There's, there's no need for that at the end of time any more than there was at any other time. 
there is a need for the gospel going to the world to reduce knowledge as a variable, to eliminate knowledge as a variable. Follow me on this. It's, 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 it's good, actually. Okay? So it goes to all the world. Um, and this is just simply saying that uh, the angel in Revelation represents God's people. Don't worry about that particular thing. You know that already. Okay? Um, so here we have the question that we stumbled on a little bit in our last session. Okay? The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. That one commandment is the hardest one to defend if you don't recognize the authority of God. Maybe that's a better way of saying it, okay? If you don't acknowledge the authority of God, there's no reason to keep that commandment. All the rest of the world, all the authority of the rest of the world is telling you to keep Sunday. It's the whole mark of the beast thing. We covered that in the sermon before, okay? Um, <coughs> let's see. There has to be a command like that in order to test faith. Okay. Jesus came to the point where he had to submit to something he didn't want and perhaps didn't even understand at that particular point. Um, faith is what goes beyond logic. Faith is built on logic. It's not illogical. But once you have a, a logical basis for faith in God, faith can take you further than logic can go. Does that make sense? Okay, if you're following with me on that, okay. Um, <coughs> at this point, Jesus didn't want to die. I mentioned that before. Um, but he trusted his Father's love and judgment, and so he went ahead. That's the kind of faith that separates the 144,000 from everyone else on earth. That's why Jesus will mark them with the seal of God. Now, follow me on this. At the end, all these things come together. It's great. When is the seal of God placed? Just before the close of probation. Answer my own question. Okay. I used to look at the seal of God and thinking it, think it was like a diploma type of thing. It was a, you know, it was a, the divine good housekeeping seal or something like that. Oh, you've passed the test. Here's the seal of God. No. The seal is before the test. It's not a diploma. It's not, a, it's not an award. The seal is God's way of demonstrating some things. First thing he's demonstrating is he knows what true faith is. He looks over all the world and he says, this one, 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 this one. He puts his mark on them. He says, now, when they understand this gospel and they have true faith, watch what the combination of those two things produces. Okay? This will be more clear as we go. <coughs> um, Okay, I got ahead of myself again. That's what happens when he can't read it fast enough. 
After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth and the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel standing from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Okay? The sealing comes before the great crisis at the end of time. Okay? Um, it's a demonstration. It's a prediction. And eventually it's a proof. When this gospel has gone to all the world, when everyone knows the principles over which this whole war between Christ and Satan is being fought, then Jesus says, watch this. I'm going to put my seal on everyone on earth who has faith, true faith. And then I'm going to let Satan do his worst. Even more than that, I myself will make sure these people face the hardest possible test of faith and they will all pass the test without sinning. I guarantee it. Just watch. Just watch. He's establishing his ability to detect true faith and determine exactly what it is. Okay? Everyone that he marks, we will see down the road, passes the test. Everyone that does not receive the mark fails the test. That's a, that's a double, uh, let's see if I get the wording right. It, it shows that faith is both necessary and sufficient for salvation, if anybody's into formal logic. Faith is necessary for salvation. You cannot be saved without faith. And it is sufficient. If you have faith, you will be saved. If you know this gospel, you will be not only saved, you will be safe. Okay? safe because they passed this test. One other quick thought here, toss this in. If I want to prove that I can lift 400 pounds, can I do it with 300 pounds on the barbell? No. No. How do you prove, how do you provide evidence to Lucifer, excuse me, to Gabriel and all the other angels, all the other, other fallen worlds, how do you provide evidence that these people will never sin? Not just a promise. How do you provide evidence? And the answer is you run them through the hardest of all possible tests. If they pass the hardest of all possible tests, you have evidence that they can pass the, the simpler tests. So what is the hardest of all possible tests? We'll come to that, okay? Okay. Um, the second thing in this demonstration is that once people understand this gospel completely, Satan's strongest temptations to abandon the principles of heaven are ineffective against those who have true faith. Even though these people used to follow the devil's principles of selfishness, they don't anymore. Okay? Um, let's see. Just as Jesus' obedience was built on his trust in his Father, the obedience of 144,000 will be built on their trust in Christ. But what is the hardest possible test of trust? Well, we've already seen what you might call round one of this test in the illogical command to keep the Sabbath. That's a test of faith. You don't have a reason for it. Okay? That's, that's, you're doing it with no reason. You're doing it because God said so. That's kind of round one. Okay? The 144,000 were all willing to obey God's command even though it just didn't make sense. They not only trusted Jesus more than they trusted all the world's opinion, they trusted him more than their own judgment. But now the test is ramped up to the ultimate level. Do they trust Christ more than their own senses? 
We've looked briefly at two parallel examples of this in previous meetings. Job. Job's test was not just that bad things were happening to him. They were supernatural bad things. It was God. He, Job had no confusion in his mind where this was coming from. Well, he was confused. <laughs> he thought it was God. You know, he, he thought he knew. <laughs> okay. It appeared to be God. Okay. It was Satan. But to Job, it was God. Okay. And then, of course, the second one is Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. Um, the greatest test of trust is when you know that the one you trusted isn't trustworthy. You see it with your own eyes. And no is in quotes there, okay? This isn't theory anymore. It's happening to you. You thought God was going to help you, but he didn't. You thought God was going to save your life, and now he's trying to kill you. So do you still trust him? Okay? This whole experience, the 144,000, just before the second coming of Jesus, is graphically portrayed in an end-time prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask now and see whether man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble but it sh he shall be saved out of it, okay? What is this called? This is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Why is it called the time of Jacob's trouble? Because it's a terrible test, much like that of the patriarch Jacob by the brook Jabbok. Remember the story? Jacob's coming back. Esau's mad, 400 armed men, okay? Cutting the story really tight here. Jacob takes all the precautions he can. He, sends his, he splits his family up, sends them over. He stays behind. He's praying, okay? At midnight, a hand is laid on his shoulder. It's got to be Esau or one of his men. And so Jacob fights for his life. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, later on in the story, of course, the Bible makes it clear this was no ordinary man Jacob was wrestling with. Totally unintended on his part, Jacob was now involved in a wrestling match with the Son of God. How long did this go on? I don't know. I think it says it was at midnight. And they wrestled to the breaking of the day. Over in Palestine, close to the equator, couldn't have been any earlier than about 5.30. That's a long wrestling match. This is not a nice guy, International Olympic Committee, you know, nice guy wrestling rules. This is a fight for your life wrestling rules, okay? It isn't pretty. Then suddenly everything changes. Now, when he, capital H, saw that he, capital H, did not prevail against him, lowercase h, let's put the names in, when Jesus saw that Jesus did not prevail against Jacob, Jesus touched the socket of Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as Jesus wrestled with him. Okay? Jacob is now in a very awkward position. He's been praying all night, God, deliver me from my enemy. And he's been trying to kill or maim his enemy. That's what wrestling is all about when you're fighting for your life, okay? And all of a sudden, this happens. This happens, okay? This is a supernatural event. He knew it the moment it happened. He knew. 
And all of a sudden, he knows now that he's been trying to kill, and the one whom he's been praying to has been trying to kill him. At least it appeared that way. He can do one of two things. He can say, I am so toast. <laughs> I've head-butted God. I used my elbow to try and destroy his kidneys. You know? <laughs> this is what fighting's all about. Five and a half hours. I mean, they're not just, just oh, I'll slap you and then you slap me. I mean, there's something's going on here, okay? He can say, I have offended the Almighty. I am dead. Or, as he did, he can say, he didn't kill me. He didn't kill me. He must really love me. That's faith. And so he falls at the feet of Jesus and he says, I will not let you go except you bless me. Okay, so here we are recapping the great controversy. This gospel goes to all the world so that everyone understands the issues of the controversy. That removes knowledge as a variable and allows God to show the universe the difference that faith makes in a person's life. Notice this point. When all other significant variables are removed, the only variable left is faith. Another way to say that is faith alone. Or maybe you speak Latin. Ever hear of sola fide? <coughs> Martin Luther was onto something. The seal of God is placed before his people are tested, which demonstrates God's ability to accurately judge whether a person has such faith. The point at issue in the conflict at this time is the Sabbath command because it is uniquely adapted to test not logic, but faith in God. That doesn't mean this whole business is anti-logic. It just says that faith built on a solid foundation of logic can extend beyond the reach of logic. And though based on the test of Sabbath observance, the ordeal of the time of Jacob's trouble eventually pits the believer's own senses against his faith in God. Everything he sees, hears, touches, tastes, and smells tells him that God has forsaken him and even actively turned against him. Now the question is, does he still trust God? <clears throat> That's the big picture. Filling in some pictures, or some, some pieces in the puzzle. Remember Satan's first recorded lie? Set up spiritualism. Does spiritualism play a role in this episode? Of course it does. This has been Satan's favorite tool down through the years simply because it has so much going for it. Often it plays on human emotions by counterfeiting dead loved ones. And in its starkest forms, it's supernaturally impressive. That gives Satan a lot to work with. So is it going to be used that, use that tool in this scenario? Of course. Revelation tells us, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. For there are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Okay, um, skipping over some other comments about how the 
concepts of spiritualism are being laid out in the media, okay? Remember the parallels between the book of Job and 144,000? Check out this verse. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake, then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my head stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Now, this isn't Job talking. This is Eliphaz the Temanite, one of his three friends, citing supernatural evidence for a message that he had to give to Job. And what was the message? Hey, Job, I have the inside scoop, direct from the other side. It was spooky, man. The spirit came to me right in my house last night. I could see it, sort of. You know what it said? It told me that you were all wrong, Job. God is mad at you, brother. That's why all this stuff is happening to you. You're all wrong on this Sabbath thing, people. Stop doing that. You know, the interesting thing about Job is that his test was to say, I am right when he was right. You know, we usually think that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a pride thing. We don't, we don't get into that too much. You know, it's like, yes, I'm, I'm the greatest of all sinners. You know, that's good. You know, I mean, Paul said that. That's a good thing to do, okay? It's a good thing to have that mentality. But at the end of time, brother, you've got to know when to stand up and say, I'm right. And that was Job's test. His three friends kept telling him, Job, you're wrong. And he kept saying, I don't see it. I don't see it. Even God himself seems to be killing me, but I'm right. That takes some nerve. And I still trust him, even though he slays me. That takes some faith. Okay? Hmm. Okay. Job's friends weren't telling him to give up on God. Oh, no. These guys were the spiritual counselors of the day. They weren't saying he should turn from God. They were saying that he needed to admit that he was wrong, that he must have some secret sin to confess. He had to be guilty of something or God wouldn't be punishing him. Just take this idea down to the time of the end. What do you suppose the spirits will be saying the 144,000 are doing wrong? They're worshiping on the wrong day. It's just a minor mix-up that needs corrected. That's all. Easy to understand, actually, since the Bible really doesn't make it clear that you're supposed to be worshiping on Sunday. Not a problem. God's reasonable. He'll just send a spirit or two. Maybe St. Peter. He's already outside the gate anyhow. It's easy. Right? Or maybe dear old Aunt Margaret. Send, him back, send her back to help out. You know, or Aunt Mabel. I guess it should be. You know. Okay. Um, spiritualism can be presented biblically in the time of the end, okay? Let's go on. I want to skip over some things. I'm, I'm going to run out of time here. Um, what about... Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to skip some things. Uh, I'm going to skip over that section. Satan's principles of government. We've already talked about that, and that's good. And... There's Jesus' principle. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, 
Okay. Jesus has put his government's reputation on the line with the seal of God. Jesus has not done that before. He's never picked out 144,000 and say, run them through the worst test you can. He couldn't do that now. We'd fail. His government's honor, its credibility, is on the line when he puts out the seal of God. Okay? Um, at that time, like never before, it's do or die for Satan. He either breaks the faith and unselfishness of the 144,000, or he loses the conflict and ends up in the lake of fire. So the devil pulls out all the stops. It's time for his masterpiece of deception because although he's outscored the Lord in the popular vote for thousands of years, there is one group who are just giving him fits. Just like Job was only one guy on earth that Jesus pointed to. The popular vote doesn't count in this particular election. <laughs> the 144,000 are giving him a lot of grief. What are they doing? What is such a problem? Revelation says that they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Okay? And so Satan attacks them on the one commandment that looks like it doesn't make sense. He brings together the power of the Catholic Church and the United States of America with its newly established image of the beast. Together they require that everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. This isn't a literal tattoo. It's the mark of the beast. We just covered this in the sermon before this. Not today, but in the series we would have. A symbol of man's supposed power to change the law of God. It's Sunday, put in place of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. First, the punishment is social. Everybody hates you. Then you can't buy or sell. Eventually, it gets elevated up to a capital punishment. They're going to kill you. Okay? The spirits are there. Okay? <laughs> Please, please, change your mind, you know, okay? God's sealed ones turn from all of that. They accept nothing but a thus saith the Lord, as Jesus did in the wilderness of temptation. The devil sees that they're paying no attention to anyone but Jesus. So he knows he has only one hope. This is when he impersonates Christ. It's the only reason to impersonate Christ. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Just think about it. Why would he do that? Who does he think he's going to fool? God? Uh, no. He's not going to fool God. The wicked? They're already fooled. There's only one target for this in the whole world. The 144,000. This is after the close of probation. This is after the seal of God is placed. It's the only time it's worth bringing out the big guns. <laughs> okay? The seal of God is the do or die occasion. If he can break God's plan there, I don't know what would happen. I don't honestly know what would happen. And remember... For whatever it's worth, it's easy to dismiss that and say, well, it'll never happen. And I trust that it never will. But Jesus could have sinned. He was a free moral agent. He could have sinned. And the 144,000 will have that weight on their shoulders, and they'll know what they're up against in that time. 
Great Controversy says that. It says that it's not a, a concern for their, themselves which motivates them. It's the fear that, the, that God's government would be dishonored. It says that. I don't remember the page number. It's on the right-hand side, though, so it's an odd, odd page number. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> everything, everything, everything Satan can possibly do, and we covered this before in a previous, previous sermon, the impersonation of Christ. Um, but it doesn't fit well, Jesus said. Not one jot or tittle. Okay. Um, basically, the 144,000 at this point, they pass the test. Nothing that Satan throws at them corrupts them. But that's not enough. That's not enough to answer Gabriel's questions. That's good. But Jesus has to go one step further. The devil has done all he can. He's failed. God has won. But Jesus still has a demonstration to make. His followers have overcome the devil. But they still have to satisfy the legitimate concerns of the angels. Is it really safe, eternally safe, to grant these former citizen, sinners citizenship in heaven? Now comes the time of Jacob's trouble. Now they are tested as Job and Jesus were tested. Now there is nothing but faith to sustain them as God himself seems to have become their enemy. Now that is a thought that most Adventists have not entertained. And so I put one slide in here just for you that I wouldn't put for everybody else. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them, for it appears to them, as to Jacob in his distress, that God himself has become an avenging enemy. It is the design of God to arouse the dormant energies of his people to look out of and away from itself to one who can bring help and salvation that the promises given for just such a time may be seen in their preciousness and relied upon with unwavering faith, unwavering trust. Here, faith is proved. This is the only reference in the whole spirit of prophecy where that comes up. And she says this, this thing right here about the avenging enemy. Right there, signs of the times, November 27, 1879. It's the only time it comes up. That's huge. That's a huge element of the demonstration. This, when I saw that, this thing started finally making sense, and I saw I could see better that there's a purpose for all this. It's not just something that has to happen because God said it has to happen. It's, it's, it's functional. It's rational. It's logical. There's a purpose for every step at the closing up of the Great Controversy. But like Jesus... The 144,000 are ready to commit their lives into the hands of God. They don't understand what's happening. It's not, that, it's not what they want, but they've learned to have total faith in the Father. I'm sorry, the Father's love and judgment. They echo the prayer of Christ, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. At that point, finally, the demonstration is complete. The principalities and powers in heavenly places have seen it all as the church has given full proof of the manifold wisdom of God. Now they see what a knowledge of this gospel combined with faith will do. In fact, my contacts are fuzzy, I can hardly read. <laughs> Let me try and get this straight here. In fact, they've seen the same amazing result from each of the 144,000. 
They've seen that Jesus made not a single mistake in judging that the faith contained in the hearts of every man, woman, and child living on earth. Why is that so important? The resurrection of the righteous dead. I always use Martin Luther as my example on this. Martin Luther was a great man. Totally fouled up on infant baptism. The one guy that talked Sabbath to him, he ran out of town. He recommended killing all my paternal ancestors. That wasn't nice. But Martin Luther had faith. And that's all that matters in the judgment. Salvation is based on faith. And so Jesus now, after this demonstration, finally has the logical pieces in place, and he can turn to the unfallen universe and say, does anyone have a problem if I resurrect Martin Luther and take him to heaven? You know, he used to live on roast beef, sauerkraut, and beer, and they won't serve that in heaven. Martin Luther had some really tasteless humor. I don't know if you ever read any of his stuff. He cracked jokes that we would find very off-color. But you know what? He can be taught this gospel in heaven. He didn't know this gospel. He knew the gospel, part of it. He didn't know this gospel, but he can be taught that in heaven. All you have to have to get to heaven is faith, true faith, which God has now just demonstrated that he can pick out every single time. Out of the millions on earth, he picked everyone that had it and left out everyone that didn't. And he's shown what true faith united with his gospel will always produce total victory over not only sin, but even over the hardest of all tests when God himself appears to be your avenging enemy, which will never happen again for all eternity. Now it's safe to bring the gavel down. There's a reason for it all. And finally, sin can now be eradicated. Well, there's things to be done. There's the whole millennium. There's the judgment there. That's already been talked about in a previous lesson, in a previous sermon. Okay. There's the resurrection of the wicked. There's the, you know, all that. Finally, they're eradicated. But it all stems from this. This demonstration has to be made. And it all stems from the principles of the gospel. The principles of the governments, I should say. The government of God and the government of Satan. That's, to me, the most important part. I don't think we take seriously the principles of God's government. We spend way too much time taking care of ourselves. I used to use an illustration with my students. And I'd tell them, I'd say, Suppose you were stranded with 99 other people on this desert island. Don't really know the place. It might be dangerous. And so you say, this is a dangerous place. We've got to watch out. You can do one of two things. I mean, you know, far this way to far that way. There's stuff in between. Don't worry about that. You can either say, this is a dangerous place. I better watch my back. I am going to make sure that I'm okay. 
I hope everybody else does fine, but I'm looking out for number one. Because I don't even know some of these people, and I'm not sure I trust them either. I'm going to watch my back. Or, the other extreme of that, you could say, hey, everybody, listen up. This is a dangerous place. We better watch out. So everybody watches everybody else and watches their back. Now, which would you rather have? Do you want to be one man by yourself, or lady, one man by yourself trying to protect yourself? Or would you rather have 99 other people watching out for you? Now, they won't all be watching you. But maybe in your most dangerous moments, even more will come. You know, you, you know? And besides, if you're all by yourself, you're still going to have to sleep. And so I could always persuade them. That's what teachers get paid to do, is persuade kids. You know? I could always persuade them that this kind of an approach, where everybody looks out for everybody else, that was the better thing. It was when I was writing this series of sermons that I realized I'd left something entirely out of the picture. I used to use the illustration. I'd say, Satan says, I know what I want, and if I have to, I'll kill you to get it. And Jesus says, I know what's best, and if I have to, I'll die so you can have it. But I didn't realize the foundation of it all. My illustration was faulty because I hadn't taken in all the variables. The one most important variable is can this island support 100 people? Think about that. Suppose there's only food on this island, enough food to keep 20 people alive. The whole I'll be generous thing just means I just committed suicide. Follow me? It's only 20 of us going to live. If I do not have confidence that I am cared for, Satan's government makes a lot of sense. And for me to live without striving for absolute confidence that God will take care of my needs is the first step away from his government. You follow what I'm saying? That's why I put in there, I have to do that because I don't trust anyone else. But Jesus says, I trust my Father. I don't have to take care of myself. I trust him to do that. I can spend my life looking out for other people. That's the difference. That's what needs to be demonstrated. Well, I hope you've gained something. I wish I could give you copies of all this. Uh, I was discussing why I, A, I'm not, <laughs> I don't have them, uh, <laughs> and, and B, the, you know, some of these things haven't been put into proper format yet, anyhow. Um, there's other issues too, but anyhow. But the great controversy is a ripe theme for evangelistic outreach. That's my conclusion from it. Um, someday, I, I'd guess, a year or two, you know, I may get a little book out like this or something like that, and, you know, that might be a useful resource to you. In the meantime, look into it yourself. It's out there. Just ripe for the picking. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's kneel for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the trouble that you went to to A, preserve scripture, and 
B, bless us with the spirit of prophecy. We thank you for the great controversy as a book, and even more for the truths, the thoughts, the ideas of it. Lord, we pray that it would become more and more of reality in our lives. And Lord, we look forward to the day that it will be fully and amply demonstrated. And finally, the pieces will all be in place. The puzzle will be clearly visible. And all will be able to see. And every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Just and true are your ways, Lord God Almighty. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. We pray you'll bless the rest of these meetings and all that's going on here. We thank you for the occasion. Pray your, your blessing on each one. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.